Hello, and welcome to Homicide, Inc. I'm Peter Von Gom. In this podcast, we're going to tell the disturbing story of the murder of two journalists on live TV as they were giving an interview. The shooter was a former disgruntled co-worker. And what's even more disturbing is this fruitcake live-streamed it on Facebook. It's the sad, sad tale of an emotionally fragile killer who felt that his actions were justified. Here's how it all went down. Thank you for listening to the Homicide Inc. podcast. Your review and rating of this podcast is a huge help for the growth of this show. You can do so wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a five-star rating and leave a review if you'd like. Thank you very much. All right, let's get back to the story. It was a balmy August morning. The warm shades of dawn spread across the early morning sky. It was the perfect backdrop for an early morning interview. But for Vicki Gardner, as she lay in a growing pool of blood, her blood, the last thing on her mind was the colors of the sky, a beautiful blue sky with the faint white trail from a passenger jet miles above. Curled up in a fetal position, she waited for the man who had shot her in the back to finish the job. She knew he was still there because he was still shooting. She couldn't tell if he was shooting at anyone else, and she knew she dare not check. Beside her lay two motionless bodies. Just a minute before, they had been interviewing her for a live newscast. Why had this killer shot them? How had he known they would be there? And who was he? Well, his name was Bryce Williams. And though Vicki Gardner didn't know it, just two years earlier, he might have been the very person conducting the interview. Though the shooter went by Bryce Williams, his real name was Vester Lee Flanagan II, a 41-year-old native of Oakland, California. He lived alone in a sparsely decorated one-bedroom apartment with his two cats in a sprawling West Wind complex in Virginia. His apartment was void of decoration, except for headshots from his early years as a small-time model plastered all over his refrigerator. On the outside, Flanagan presented the image of a regular guy going about his day-to-day life. However, he was anything but. In his apartment complex, Flanagan was known for getting into arguments with neighbors, and come next morning, those neighbors would find their doors covered in cat feces. Flanagan was a trebuchet, and his weapon of choice was cat poop. His fur babies provided him with a steady supply of poop to hurl at the doors and balconies of those who crossed him. Neighbors avoided him at all costs, as you would. He had some talent and experience in reporting, and seemed to be hopping from TV station to TV station. But this parade of career mobility hid something else. Flanagan struggled with racism in the places he worked, or he thought he did. When he first got hired at WDBJ7 and moved to Virginia in 2012, his new colleagues trod carefully whenever Flanagan was around. In a conversation with Flanagan, One colleague, Allison Parker, then an intern, had remarked to him about someone swinging by, and -and so-and-so had been on the field. And Flanagan 
appeared frothing at her shoulder, demanding, What are you saying? Swinging? Cotton fields? That's racism. Dude clearly had a chip on his shoulder. One time, he accused a manager of racism because, wait for it, bringing watermelons to work for the crew. That's right, watermelon. When colleagues told him that the manager brought watermelons all the time, he refused to accept it. Nope, he'd say. This is for me. You guys are calling me out because I'm black. He also accused his colleagues of moving the watermelon to places that he would notice. Local 7-Elevens were not left out of being declared racist because they dared to sell watermelon-flavored Slurpees. Those are good, I've had one. Just two months into his employment at the station, an executive had received three separate reports from different employees alleging various incidents. Flanagan had threatened them. The executive insisted Flanagan had to see the company's counselor, but it was to no avail. After just 10 months, Flanagan was given a two-week pay severance package and kicked to the curb. But Flanagan could not understand why he would get such a small severance. He flew into a rage, insisting that he was to be paid a three-month severance. Terrified co-workers, stunned by the outburst, locked themselves in offices until the police came and escorted him out of the building. As he was being taken away, he told the police that one of the co-workers had called him the N-word and left a watermelon in the hallway for a week. Finally, the door closed shut on Flanagan and the staff of WDBJ7 let out a collective sigh of relief. But Flanagan wasn't done with them yet. Citing his racist experiences, watermelons and on the field, Flanagan filed a civil suit against the station. Now, this was not Flanagan's first time badly parting with employers. He was a connoisseur in the game. He had also taken a network to court in 2000, when he was hired by NBC's WTWC-TV. But they found the quality of his reporting to be subpar. Again, he flew into a rage, blaming everyone else when they complained. After just a year, the company cited one too many clashes, and he was given the boot. Flanagan, however, came to his conclusions on why he had been fired. And he presented those conclusions when he filed a civil lawsuit against them seeking $15,000 in damage. The conclusion? Racism. He said they called him monkey on numerous occasions and suggested affirmative action was the only reason he had been hired. The case was settled out of court. Hmm, so perhaps being a douchebag, getting fired and then suing was Flanagan's cash cow? Cash cow or not, luck was not on his side this time, and his case against WDJB7 was dismissed. The network walked away thinking they had heard the last from Flanagan. But boy, were they mistaken. It's a year later, and on the balcony of the Bridgewater Plaza in Moneta, Virginia, 24-year-old local news reporter Allison Parker was ready for the day's itinerary. It was a momentous day for her because it was her last day at WDBJ. She would be moving to Charlotte, North Carolina to start a new job. 
Her final interview was with Vicki Gardner, a Virginia Chamber of Commerce official, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the town's famous tourist attraction, Smith Lake. The interview would be streaming live on the WDBJ morning segment, News 7 Morning, to their over 40,000 viewers. With her was colleague, 27-year-old photojournalist Adam Ward. The three thought they were the only ones at the plaza that morning, but they weren't. Viewers at home were listening to Gardner reply to a question when she was cut short by eight loud bangs, followed by Parker's screams as she tried to run. The camera tumbles to the ground and picks up a dark figure standing in the shadows before the feed is cut off and swings back to the segment's anchor. From her shocked, horrified face, it's easy to tell that this was not the broadcast they'd planned for. The offices at the news station were equally confused. Nobody quite knew what had just happened. It sounded like a car backfiring. But why would a car backfiring cause Adam to drop his camera and make Parker scream and run? Plus, who was the last person that had been standing? The staff at the network quickly reviewed the footage and froze it on the darkly clothed figure. They gasped in shock as they recognized him. It was none other than Flanagan, and in his hand he held a Glock 9mm. They weren't sure what had happened, but it clearly wasn't a car backfiring. Immediately they called the police. Flanagan had fled the scene in a Chevy Sonic that he had rented earlier in the month, but he was not trying to hide. At 8.23 a.m., he faxed a 27-page jumble of thoughts to ABC News under his public name, Bryce Williams. By 10 a.m., he calls ABC News to tell them his name was Vester Lee Flanagan and not Bryce Williams. He also informed them that he had just killed two people. He uploaded a video of the shooting, filmed GoPro-style on his Facebook and Twitter accounts. The 52-second footage quickly went viral. He also posted a couple of tweets. I filmed the shooting, see Facebook, reads one. Allison made a racist comment, reads another, citing the time Parker had mentioned some colleagues were on the field. Another quote read, Adam went to HR on me after working with me once. He then posted pictures of himself with the caption, headshots used for getting acting, modeling way back. Somewhere between this tirade, he texted a friend that he had done something stupid. Maybe to throw off the cops, Flanagan had left his Ford Mustang in the parking lot of the local airport. But the police were already tracing his phone. He was driving north, and officers in the area were notified to be on the lookout for the vehicle that witnesses had described. Eventually, a police officer's license plate reader picked out his car. She turned on her lights, but Flanagan sped off. The chase began, but it soon ended when he crashed off the side of the road. By the time the officer got to his vehicle, she found Flanagan bleeding from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. But he was still alive, barely. He was airlifted to a nearby hospital. Great, who paid for that? Police searched his car and found the pistol that he shot himself and the victims with, a bunch of stamped letters, an umbrella, a to-do list, several pairs of sunglasses, ammo, an iPhone, a shawl, a briefcase, 
and three different license plates. I think we can assume that Flanagan had a getaway plan, but whatever the answer, he wasn't talking. Not because he didn't want to, but because he died a couple hours later in the hospital. Police then looked into Flanagan's life and found that after getting fired, he was never able to get another job in network TV because all his references would warn of his difficult behavior. When he finally got a job at a call center, he was soon reported for harassing a colleague. Three months before the shooting, he'd sent a 15-page letter to a local beer and burger. The cause of his disgruntlement was that when patrons were leaving, servers told them, have a nice day, instead of, thank you. Huh? And just a few weeks before the shooting, he was involved in a road rage incident. A week before the shootings, he killed his two cats, and then posted on Facebook that he missed those cats. Flanagan's apartment was right across the street from WDBJ7, which explains the possibility that he had stalked his victims to the scene of the crime. Upon searching the apartment, they found material that showed Flanagan identified with people who committed acts of violence and mass killings. This echoed the thoughts he'd put down in the facts he sent to ABC News. Police also found that he had contacted ABC News two whole weeks before the shooting, telling them that he had a story to pitch that he would fax over. The fax came two hours after the shooting. In it, he wrote that he did it because of the nine black parishioners killed in the church shooting in Charleston. My bullets have the victim's initials on them. I've been a human powder keg for a while, just waiting to boom. He also wrote with admiration about the Virginia Tech killer and the Columbine High School shooters. But his attempt to be a champion for racism was blown wide open when police contacted the person that Flanagan had called that fateful day. His name was Avent, and they had been roommates back in California. He told them he received a package of letters and photos, student IDs, driver's licenses from Flanagan before the murders. And in the letters, he talked about his physical insecurities, fondly reminiscing about his younger years as a male escort when he had once been paid two grand, and how he didn't want to get old because he totally cannot score right now. Avent also told authorities about the strained relationship Flanagan had with his family, who didn't approve of his lifestyle as an escort and ostracized him. So when he got the job at WDBJ, he was excited to leave all that behind and move to Virginia and start a new life. But the reality was different, and Flanagan felt more alone than ever. Throwing cat poop at your neighbors would do that. Avent also revealed that Flanagan only became worse when he lost his job. In one of the letters, Flanagan said that he had written to his father, telling him he didn't want a funeral, just to be cremated. That, perhaps, should have raised some flags. On the day of the murders, Avent said he'd woken up to a bizarre text from Flanagan, that he had done something very bad. When he called him back, Flanagan flippantly told him he'd shot and killed two people. When Avent asked him why, he said, Well, you know... I just feel I didn't like these people. Not one mention of racism. 
Vicki Gardner, the subject of the interview on that fateful day, survived the incident, though she lost a kidney and suffered damage to other organs. Her two companions were not so lucky. News reporter Allison Parker and photographer Adam Ward both died at the scene from multiple gunshot wounds. That live-streaming video of their murders that has garnered millions of views and continues to grow, well, Allison Parker's father, Andy, is trying desperately to expunge that video from the Internet. As anyone can imagine, it must be an absolutely horrific nightmare that he lives on a day-to-day basis. And knowing that people are watching his daughter be murdered in cold blood, six years on, it still gets tons of views, despite Mr. Parker's efforts to eliminate the clips from the Internet. So now, in a bit of a Hail Mary bid, he has created an NFT, a non-fungible token, of that video clip in a tactic to use copyright to force it out of the hands of big tech. Just recently, he launched a congressional campaign focused partly on holding social media companies accountable for the spread of harmful content on their sites. Under current law, the platforms are largely shielded from liability for the content of posts by their users. But those platforms may still be subject to copyright claims if they don't remove infringing content. And experts say a lawsuit alleging that the video is copyrighted material could offer Parker a more effective path to getting it taken down once and for all. I certainly hope it works. Thanks always, guys, for tuning in to the Homicide Inc. podcast. If you like this type of podcast, make sure you subscribe so you'll get notifications as soon as a new episode is released. And be sure and check out our Patreon campaign for exclusive Homicide Inc. podcasts that are available first to patrons. That information is in the description of this podcast. If you have a compelling true crime story you'd like me to consider investigating, please send me an email. And if you'd like to help support the production of the Homicide Inc. podcast, you can always buy us a cup of coffee. Your help is hugely appreciated. Those details are also in the description and on the Homicide Inc. website, where you can hear all the podcasts and some other cool stuff. Thanks so much, and we'll see you again very soon. Ciao for now.